Hey, everybody, just want to tell you about the coaching services that I'm offering. Phenomenal stuff right now. Literally, this is my favorite professional development that I've ever done. So basically, schools are hiring me, whether it's in person or virtual. I meet with teachers in small groups and tell them in, in 50 to 60 minute intervals, tell them to bring one or two kids that if we could really help one or two, it will have a ripple effect on your school, on your class, on yourself. That's what we do. It is spectacular because I'm helping teachers in the moment and there's nothing better than that. Go to my website, brianmendler.com to get all the information you need. brianmendler.com for coaching services. I'll see you there. Hey, one more thing. Don't forget to check out my brand new book, That One Kid, the second edition. Finally, the second edition of my national bestseller that came out seven years ago. Hard to believe that it came out seven years ago. But basically what I do is the coaching sessions I just told you about. I meet with teachers in small groups and I tell them bring one kid. And then I basically type up a one-page report of everything that we went over and went through. My wife was on my computer and she was reading these reports and she was like, you should do something with them. These are good. I'm like, what do I do? She's like, put them in a book for people who don't like to read. And that's what I did. And that's kind of what formulated my first book, That One Kid. And I called it That One Kid because at workshops, everyone comes up to me and they're like, I got this one kid. You know that one kid? Sometimes they say those two, but that one sounded better for a book title. Go to Amazon right now. Amazon.com is where you can get it. That One Kid, second edition. Check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Brian Mendler Show. Introducing your host, fighting for kids everywhere, Brian, that one kid, Mendler. What is up, everybody? Brian Mendler back in your life on another edition of the podcast. And today I am super excited to be joined by Josh Stamper. And I haven't met him yet, so it's good to meet you, man. I've seen you all over the place and good to finally get to meet you and catch up. Oh, Brian, that's awesome, man. I've had this date circled on my calendar for a really long time, (laughs) and I'm so excited it's actually here and to get to meet you. You do a phenomenal job with the podcast and speaking and everything. Appreciate it. So I just wanted to start by asking, I, I see the jerseys behind you. So you got Kevin Garnett and you got Culpepper, Dante Culpepper. What are the significance of those? Well, I grew up in Minnesota. So, you know, that's 17 years of growing up in my life, uh, living in that space. And I am a huge Minnesota fan. So, you know, actually podcasting, I first was introduced to podcasting through Minnesota sports. And so I still to this day, just get every last little bit of information I can from my teams. And so even though I live in Texas now and have been here for the last 15 years, I still go up to Minnesota. I go to Timberwolves games. I, I try and get up there. Uh, took my son to see the Vikings. I mean, so like I still have a love there. My family still lives up there. So um, I have a deep connection and, and absolutely love sports. So Garnett was my favorite player growing up. So that's why I have him represented behind me. Do you remember the podcasting through Minnesota sports? What was the specific? Do you remember? Yeah, it was K-Fan is is the Minnesota Vikings radio broadcast. And it has been for as long as I can remember. So, you know, being down here in Texas, I was still trying to get as much information as possible. And so they started to take their broadcast and put it on a podcast form. And so that was how I was trying to keep up with Minnesota sports. Because down here in Texas, it's Dallas Cowboy country, you know, Mavericks. So... I don't get any anything from Minnesota down here, so I had to like find ways to still be connected to the sports teams, and that was how I was getting my information. How did you get from Minnesota to Texas? What brought you? Uh, my in-laws and bad economy. So the economy crashed uh, in 2000, 
2005, 2007, between those years. And Minnesota got hit really, really hard. So I transitioned from being a graphic designer to a teacher. And so in that process, you know, I was doing the whole student teaching thing. I was a paraprofessional with special education students. And uh, I was a soccer coach at the same time. And I was looking for a job and there was just nothing up there. It was like essentially for an art teacher, that was the specialized uh, unit that I was in, you know, for an art teacher, it was like being on a cart halftime at one campus and then halftime at another. And yeah. I was like, I don't want, I don't want to do that. So my in-laws just kept saying like, come down here, come down here. The economy is great. There's so many jobs. So I, I didn't really want to leave Minnesota. I, I told my wife like, Hey, we'll fly down for a weekend. And if we get jobs, then we'll move thinking there's no way. And sure enough, we flew down and <laughs> both of us got jobs. And then I'm like, okay, I guess we're going. So my first job was at a middle school as an art teacher and worked there as a teacher for six years. So it was art was your subject for the most part? Yeah, I, I hated school, Brian. My mom still to this day laughs that I'm in education because I, I was miserable. I couldn't stand it. Same. It was just a place that I didn't fit into. And art was just the space that gave me the, the opportunity to do what I wanted when I wanted. Uh, I didn't have any rules to really follow. And... I did have a knack for art. I had a lot of folks tell me that I was good at it. And, you know, being in school, constantly being told that I was a failure in many spaces, and then to have someone say, oh, you're really good at this. You should continue in it. Just made me fall in love with it even more. So I have a creative mind. I, I have this like weird brain where I'm fighting constantly uh, in two spaces. So um, I do love art. It's something that I am passionate about, but I'm also one of those people that is just creative and likes to move on to different projects. So yeah, that was my space. It was essentially athletics and art that got me through and got me to graduate. It's weird. I feel like I have a penchant for bringing people on the podcast who are educators and doing really great things in education who did not love school or struggled in school themselves. You say that school wasn't a great place for you. Tell me a little bit more specifically about that. Yeah. So in class, you know, it was pretty road. I mean, it was essentially going in, getting lectured for 45 minutes, getting your worksheets or your assignment in your textbook for the last 10 and then given some homework at the end of the day. And, you know, getting through eight class periods of that every single day and doing the exact same thing. It just, that just wasn't me. I was very active. Uh, I, to sit in a desk for 45 minutes at a time being told to be quiet and not to move was just miserable. I, I needed to get up and go. And then in addition to that, just like, I didn't feel like it was life skills. I was constantly asking, like, why am I here? What am, what am I learning this for? Am I ever going to use this in real life? And oftentimes it was no. And nobody could give me a straight answer as to why I was doing the things that I was doing in school. So, you know, for me, it was just like this. I just felt trapped. I felt like it was in a prison all the time. So for me, it just it didn't work. I was constantly asking to find something else or do something else. And um, I just didn't really see the point until, you know, I was really challenged by a counselor of all people really getting into my grill one day. I, I did not like him. I, I wrote about him in my book. <laughs> he was a huge motivation in my life in a negative way. He sat me down and was just really just yelling at me. I didn't have a relationship with the man. I, I didn't know him. The only reason he came in or brought me in was because he was trying to tell me that I was going to not live up to anything in life. And that's essentially what he said. And it was like, you're not going to get into any college. You're not going to get into state college. Where do you even want to go to college? And so I told him a private institution, Bethlehem University. And he laughed at me right in my face. I was like, you'll never get in there. And he got after me for a good 30 minutes of just telling me how like my grades were atrocious and how I was just going to be a failure in life. I remember walking out of there thinking in my head, like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to prove this guy that he's wrong. And I'm going to get in the college that I want to get into. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. I went home, I created a plan and I was like, I know I only have to do this for a year. 
I can do this for a year. I can play the game for a year and decide to get good grades, you know, try and get a good score on the test, which I didn't on my ACT, but that's another story. And then, you know, I applied to get into my college. I got letter in the mail saying no. So then I tried again. I applied again to the same Bethel University. I got another letter saying no. And then I was just like deflated. And so I just happened to look at the bottom of the letter and says, if you want to get in still, you can, you know, go in front of a board, you know, and you got to do these steps. And so that's what I did. So I, I filled it out and I pushed even harder and I went in front of eight people that were at a table and I just told my story and I said, you know what? I don't enjoy school. I don't find any value in it. However, I do know that college is where I'm supposed to be. And the meeting went really, really well. It was in August, like the first part of August. And that day, right after the meeting, they, they let me in to Bethel University. And that's where I graduated from. Were you an education person from the start or were you doing something at me either? I think, and I think that happens with a lot of people who didn't do well in school. They go for something else. And then somehow we got, we get our way back to this. So how did you, what did you start with? And then where was your transition point where you're like, you know what, I'm going to switch and go to become an educator. Yeah, I was fine arts. I did that for four years. I did the whole gallery and uh, portfolio and all that. And then from there I became a graphic designer. So I worked for a company who had two businesses, mostly through digital photography and, you know, just learn that space. I loved it, but that's when the economy crashed. It was a small business up in Monticello, Minnesota, and um, I worked there for three years mm. and absolutely loved it. Doing all the advertising for them and working with digital files, essentially touching them up. And then yeah, I remember because it was young. I mean, I was just a couple years into our marriage and my boss came in and was like, hey, you know, we're, we're struggling and your, your position is going to be dissolved here in, in a couple weeks. So you need to figure out what you're going to do. Wow. And I just remember just dreading it going home and sitting down with Leslie and saying, hey, I'm not going to have a job here in a couple of weeks. So what are we going to do? And she's, of course, phenomenal and very wise. So she was like, what do you love to do? Like, this is your opportunity. Yeah. What do you love to do? Yeah. So I came down with two things. It was art and soccer. Those were my two loves. So, you know, what space can I work in where I'm going to be super happy? And so we, we landed on being an art teacher and a coach. And that's the direction I went in. I notoriously tell people all the time that I'm in addiction recovery. And one of the things that we learn in addiction recovery is if it hurts a lot in the short term, it's usually really good for me in the long term. And if it feels really good in the short term, it's usually really bad for me in the long term. And I think that's the case sometimes with jobs. It's like sometimes in the short term, you get cut from a position or a position doesn't work out and like it hurts. It's painful in the short term, but long term, it actually works out. Do you feel that was kind of the case for you? Yeah, I think that's just in life. Yeah, really. Like same. I told my students, I told my staff, I tell people all the time, like the best learning experience is when I'm doing true reflection is through failure. It's not through the successes. We don't learn anything through our successes. It technically comes naturally, <laughs> like comes really easy. And so there's no lesson to be learned in that. The struggles, even though they suck when we're in them, really are the ones that teach us the most. So yeah, I always try to lean into failure. Obviously it's painful. It really stretches us as human beings in our experiences, but I think it's probably the most beneficial thing that we can do. You know, switching gears a little bit, I noticed on your Instagram on last Tuesday, so it was Giving Tuesday, you posted an adoption place, right? And I know that's close to your heart. I'm interested in that, in, in hearing about that part of your journey and your story. And how did that happen? And tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So 10 years ago, Leslie and I were trying to decide 
like what we're going to do as far as like building our family. Um, we had two biological children at the time and it just seemed like everywhere we turned, people were talking about adoption or foster care. And I mean, at church or we had friends, I mean, it just like came up constantly and we're like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Like, is this something that we need to look into? So that's exactly what we did. And we looked at private adoption at first, but I mean, that's quite a process. I don't know if you've ever looked into it, but you know, going, especially like overseas, they require a lot of your time. It's really, really expensive. You know, as an educator, I make a lot of money, so that's not really an option. So some friends of ours had foster children that they adopted. They had a wonderful experience. They asked us to come over. And so we had a meal with them and their, and their kids. And it really was a phenomenal time to really just ask questions and get into the nitty gritty of, of what that process is. Because what I didn't realize was there's just a lot of kids in care, um, not only in the United States, but in Texas. And so, you know, I was like, well, there's kids in our backyard that don't have homes. Why wouldn't we offer up our house to allow them to come in? And so that was what we landed on. And so we went through the foster care process. It just so happened. It was when I was a dean of students and I was struggling in my position there as a leader. There was a a campus that was having a lot of difficulties in the community that was spilling over into the campus. And it was this beautiful time, right? The failure piece of me failing as administrator, but also learning how to become a foster parent. And that's when I started to learn about trauma-informed practices and, and then restorative practices. And the foster care training not only helped me as a parent, but also actually helped me as an educator. And so... I talk a lot about that story too. That's a little bit different, but me and my wife, you know, absolutely loved the opportunity to bring in kids into our home. And so, yeah, we've had five different plate, no, actually six different placements. And, you know, we have three adopted and one hopefully adopted here in a couple of months, which is the little heart there. So she's 11 months old. We're looking at your family. So tell who's who here. Tell me a little bit about who's who. Yeah. So my oldest is Mila. And second oldest is Landon. So those are our, our bio kids. And then we've got Gabriel there. We've got Aiden and Elijah. And those are our three adopted boys. And then I won't share her name, but our, our little girl is 11 yeah. months old. Yeah. And she's a little hard. So, you know, as soon as that process is finished, then you're going to get inundated with a lot of fantastic, cute <laughs> of her. <laughs> so it will be when it's done for adopted kids for you, correct? That is correct. Yeah, I can't wait for the day. Did it start where you were like, we're just going to adopt one, and then that was a great experience, and you just continued on? Yeah, so the first one actually was a reunification. It was a beautiful story. It was this little guy that came to us, and we had him for five, six months, and it was kind of known that he was only going to be in our house for a short time. Of course, with foster care, our goal is always to have them go back for their parents. So, you know, with the court, there's a plan, and hopefully the parents, you know, go through and, and get everything together. and you know, we were just supposed to be a short-term place for him. And that's exactly what happened. So yeah, we celebrated that one. And, and that little guy went back home where he was supposed to be go. And I don't know, a couple months later, we got a call. It was kind of a weird thing. Some friends of friends had a little boy in care. It wasn't going to be his forever home. And, and they just wanted to find a good family. And um, so we actually did some visits with him. And then it was like, we'll do respite care. So that's where like he can be in our care for a couple of days at a time. And then it just went really, really well. We were like, we feel called to have this little guy in our family. And so, yeah, they made the transition to have him here placed. And, you know, after a year, then it was time for, for us to be able to adopt him. And so we, we let the corporate system go through their their process to, to get to that point. And then, yeah, so Gabriel was our, our first adoption. And How old was he at the time? He was uh, about one and a half. 
Okay, so little. Yeah, so we got him when he was about six months old. Yeah, and most of our children we we got when they were either straight from the hospital or or pretty young. And that's not typical, but for our story, it's just how it worked out. Are they aware of their like situation? And do do you are you in touch with their bio parents at all? They are aware, and no, we're we're not in touch. So we want to make sure that we're as transparent as possible because that is their story, right? So we want to make sure that they understand what's going on and. That's a, a big piece of their growing up and what they're all about. So, you know, obviously you could see too, there's multiple cultures that are represented in our family too. And so we sure. try to celebrate as much as possible and, and make sure that they understand, you know, their heritage and what their, you know, backstory is and, and make sure that, you know, just because they're living in a white family doesn't mean that they're only going to live in a white culture. How has the experience of adoption affected you as an educator? How specifically has it changed you really as an educator? It changed a lot, Brian. I'm not going to lie. I, I was in a Title I school at the time when we first started the adoption process or the foster care process. And I remember the training. And there's a, an extensive amount of training. If anyone's looking into foster care, I just want you to be aware of what you're signing up for. There's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of training. There's a lot of visits. I mean, there's people in our homes all the time. So just being very transparent for anyone that's interested. Obviously, there's a lot of need out there, but for anyone being called, like it is a lot of work. What's the training, Josh? What specifically is the training? When you say there's a lot of training, what specifically? Yeah, so there's training for safety as far as like how to construct your house to make sure that nobody's getting injured. Like, for instance, we have a pool in our backyard because we live in Texas and it's like a million degrees out. So there's a lot of safety pieces that go with a pool and you know, so there's training on like how to prep it so that no child is going to fall in and, and drown to death, right? There's a lot of training on trauma-informed care. So like how to parent without hitting your child or spanking them, right? There's a lot of other trainings too as far as, you know, just like abuse and, you know, things that happen, why a child is taken out of care. So a lot of it's common sense, you would think, to a parent. However, the state obviously is mandated to make sure that everybody has the appropriate training to be a safe environment for the child. So for me, I was in the state of like, hey, I have two healthy, uh, what I think are, you know, doing pretty well children. Like, I, I'm a parent already. Why am I going through this training? And I did have a great mindset going in. However, we went through a training through trauma-informed practices with Professor Purvis, Dr. Purvis, and she was just phenomenal. The training was like one of those things. It was just like a, a light bulb moment for me of, okay, I, I've done these things with my own bio children. I might want to change my practices there. However, this actually could work in a school because every behavior you're talking about in the foster care system and what they're seeing with behaviors is what exactly what I'm seeing at my campus. So then like how... How can I actually start using these practices and why does the practices that we're using on campus look so very drastically different than what we're trying to do here in foster care? And like, why aren't these two worlds merging together? And so that was kind of my, my charge after, you know, those sessions. And yeah, I just kind of like tried to revamp as much as possible. And of course, I mean, you're a building leader have been, you, you know what that looks like. It was extremely difficult to start to change, change mind frames and let them understand like the behaviors that we're seeing are really a language. Kids are telling us stuff that's going on. They don't know how to really handle it. And then they also don't have the support at home and they just don't have the skills. Like we assume all these, these kids, because they look, some of them look like adults as eighth graders have these skills to make sure that they go through mm. stress or an adverse 
you know, situation, but they didn't, they didn't have the skills to do that. And so they're just trying to survive. And then in addition, you know, we've got some of these traditional practices going on as far as what I was going through in school and they don't want to be here. They don't see the value of being in school. So if you have this piece of, I don't really want to be here in the first place and I don't have the skills to work through difficult situations, then it's like, just kick me out of school. I don't want to, like, I'd rather go home. I'd rather run with my friends in the neighborhood. And that's what we were doing. We were allowing that to happen. And of course, what was happening was the cycle of, I'm going to kick you out. Then you're going to get in trouble in the neighborhood. And then that trouble is going to then come back and I'm going to have to deal with it the next day. And nothing was really happening as far as like growth. The, the students weren't growing in their emotional intelligence and their skills. So what's the specific that you kind of put in place to break that cycle? Yeah, so it was just like, breaking down the entire system. I, I just was a madman, man. I like, I was like, how can I do this? Because what we're doing is not working and everybody wants to continue in the same system. And they're upset that we're not continuing even harsher than what we were doing before, even though nothing is working. You know, it was unfortunate because I got promoted that summer. So like I was just starting the process and then I got moved to a different campus. The good piece of that was like the training that I had was a, it was a very similar campus as far as the needs. And I just like was already on, uh, <laughs> I was extremely passionate. I was motivated. And so I did that with my new campus. It was like, let's create an action team. So it was called the relationship action team. And I, as quickly as I possibly could was finding like-minded folks to bring them in to say, Hey, I don't know everything. This is not a top-down initiative. If you want to be a part of this, feel free to join. And that's what we did. So I had maybe seven people to start with. And we just learned about restorative practices. I brought in the TCU training. We learned about trauma-informed care. What can we start to do and implement? And then let's come back together. Did it work? What worked? What didn't work? And then, so we were just trying to like bring as many resources as possible together. The other piece to it though, I was very intentional about this, was like, hey, if you have something that works in your classroom and we're learning about it, you have to share it out to your peers. And then if it's working for them, invite them to come to this relationship action team. And so by the end of the school year, we had like 30 to 35 people that were consistently showing mm -hmm. up and we started with seven. So it was all about building disciples in that. Once we had about 35 at the end of the school year, then it wasn't a, a top-down initiative anymore. It was the majority of our staff was already starting to use these practices. So it was a very easy thing the second year to just say, this is something that we're going to do campus-wide. And then how can, I also, how can we connect it? So then I started to connect it with our PBIS team. So then the action relationship team plus the PBIS team, we're starting to merge together also to then make sure that this is just something that we do as a culture. You know, I was talking to a friend the other day who was telling me that she struggles teaching other people how to build relationships. I, I think she's really good at building relationships, like sure. personally, like she's built a relationship with me. She's built relationships with other people, but she struggles to teach other people how to do that. I'm curious from your standpoint and, and talking about that, you said that word relationship multiple times. How do you go about teaching people who, who sort of struggle in that area? Because I think, look, I think in education there, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, it's just true. Like, I think there are a lot of people who get into the profession because they're interested in teaching math or they're interested in teaching science or they like they want to teach art, right? They're not there to really connect with people, right? And so that's a skill, I think, that takes them learning. How do you go about teaching that to people? No, I 100% agree, Brian. Like, and I even think about like my own training. Like when, when we went in to learn to become a teacher, it was curriculum based. It, it was about how to 
share out information, it wasn't about classroom management. <laughs> that wasn't a part of it. So yeah, I just like we can't assume the students have the skills to work through adverse situations. We can't assume that our teachers have the practices and the tools to build practical relationships, positive relationships. Because a lot of times what it would come down to is like I, I'd start to share about students and, and their background and things I found out about. And I'd ask the teacher about it and they'd be like, oh, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And unfortunately, so often we, we think compliance is a good relationship. And that's not the case. Like we really need to get down and understand like what is going on in the lives of our students. And a lot of times the, the kids that are hurting the most are the ones that are the most quiet that you never have to deal with at all. So for me, it was like, what are our practices to make sure that we can do something that's quick, easy, where we can learn about our kids and give them a place that they feel safe. And that was the major piece of, of trying to build practices in the classroom where kids can go in, understand what the environment is about that they're not going to be in an unsafe space and that they can share out who they are as an individual. Because too often what was happening was a kid could go into a class and never talk about themselves once and leave feeling like they weren't connected to anybody. And we don't need that. So what things can we do as a campus to right away make them feel like they belong? Every teacher needs to be at the door. Everyone needs to greet every kid. You need to know their name first week of school. You know, and you need to use their name. You need to know their background, where are they from, where they're coming from. You know, and so these were the things that we were trying to implement. How do we do that? So, you know, so often the first two weeks of school is where we learn about our kids. And then we never talk to them again about their background, what they, what they like, what they enjoy. And it was like, no, we're going to do this every day. So figure out how to do a brain break. Figure out how to do 30 seconds to throw up some random question and make sure your kids know how to communicate with each other, right? So we did uh, circles, eventually we got to uh, relationship circles. So we would post questions up on the board every single day. And it could be something, hopefully silly, stupid, right? Like, which one of these nine uh, French fries are your favorite? You know, that, that has nothing to do with school. However, kids absolutely love to talk about food. They love to talk about what their favorite things are. So it, it got the kids brains activated, it got something silly, it got them to you know, work on their communication skills. It also helped with their listening skills. You know, then they started to make connections with each other. Oh, you like that too? I do, you know, those are my favorite sneakers or my kicks, right? Oh, you like that artist? I like that artist too. I listen to their music all the time. Mr. Mendler, you, you listen to that too? Oh my goodness. Like there's connections there that they learn about their teacher just as much as the teachers learn about them. It's simple. It's not going to take a lot of time. So that was the main piece of like finding relationship opportunities that weren't going to take away from the curriculum and stress the teacher out because that was the last thing I wanted. And then other things too, like, you know, if there's a really tough kid that doesn't want to connect with you, you know, you're going to have to make an individual effort. So like we used what was called like a 10 2 strategy. So it was 10 days in a row, two weeks, spend two minutes with them. Like when there's time where kids are working with each other, just sit down, like bend down, kneel down, get next to them, just ask, start asking questions about them. And sure enough, like every time I asked a teacher to do that, it was the consistency. It was something that they weren't used to. What adult ever wanted to get to know me growing up? For me personally in school, I was struggling. At home, there were things going on that nobody knew about, but no teacher ever asked about me individually. And I don't ever want a kid going into my school feeling the same way I did growing up. So get down to their level, start asking the questions that need to be asked about who they are as individuals to make that connection. So you know what I always say, the best way to get to our knowledge to the brain is through the heart. You got to touch them at the heart. So 
What are you doing every single day to make a relationship stronger and to get to know the kid that you're trying to get knowledge into? So good. I love, I love all of it. And, and I agree with all of it. And, and I teach the same thing and it's like, it's the person, right? It's all about the person. It's not about the product, right? Math is the product. Science is the product. Social studies is the product, but we teach people, right? The person comes first. And my thought is always that the product, I, I kind of almost do this because in my head, it's like the curriculum is, it's sort of like in the grocery store. It's like the, the stuff on the shelves, right? It never goes bad. It's always going to be there. You can always get to it. It it will it will always be a part of that, right? Hey, there you go. Yeah, people are a product, right? And it's there and you, you can get to it. But like everything else, right? The teaching kids how to say please and thank you and the, the teaching kids, you know, how to act interested when they were bored, right? Because I always taught the kids how to show everybody how bored they were, right? They were bored, but they had like, it wasn't that they were bored that they were getting in trouble. It was that they were bored and they had to show everybody how bored, oh, this is so stupid and I hate this class and like rolling their eyes and putting their heads out. And like, that's the produce, right? That's the stuff that's, if you don't get it right then, like when it presents itself to you, it's like the, the raspberries. They're going to be moldy in two days if you don't eat them right now. And so the thought process is see what's in front of you. And it, it's kind of like in sports, right? Sometimes I think teaching in general sometimes is a simple profession for complicated people. Like I think we complicate teaching sometimes. And what I mean by that is like there were times where I would I coach baseball and I would have a kid in a slump, right? Or they, they would be struggling at the plate. And there were times I would just look at the kid and say, just see the ball, hit it and run. <laughs> like, like, don't do anything. Like you're looking at me for signs and you're trying to just see the ball, hit it and run. And I think sometimes in education, you just got to see the kid and teach them. I don't always know what that teaching them is going to be, right? It might be science today, no question, but it might also be, you know, 10 other things that present themselves to us. And some of the struggle for certain teachers is teachers in general are rule followers, most of them, right? Like, and so you tell them, you know, speed limit's 45, they might go 47, right? But most of them are sort of, and so the thought process is I'm supposed to teach reading right now. Like reading is what my administrators are telling me. It's what the, the people at the state are telling me. How do you break that? Like, how do you get people to say, I know, I know that that stuff's important, but don't be willing to sort of, or, or I'm saying be willing to change gears if that option presents itself to you. It's hard, honestly. Because the other thing about education is that teachers are so used to administrators telling them no. They have these brilliant ideas. They come into the front office, they share it, and then they get shut down immediately. Oh, we can't do that. And then a list of reasons why, or maybe no reasons why, just a no. And that's defeating over time. So, you know, every building that I've been in, that was something I had to constantly break down of letting them experience me saying yes and letting them understand, please experiment, please try something new try something creative. I'm not going to get in the way of that. In fact, I'm going to support you. And that takes time over time, over time doing that for them to understand like, oh, this is actually a culture that's being built. He's not just saying it, he actually means it. And then in that, like getting in the classrooms and, and finding those opportunities of like, hey, I actually saw you do this with a student. I don't know if you realize it, but it was really, really effective. And the students started to work so much better after the opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one with you. And trying to reinforce those opportunities and being specific within that feedback. I think that's too often like teachers do things and they don't even realize they're doing it. And so like trying to draw those out and then amplify them and say like, this is something that you did phenomenal. I want you to keep doing that. And it's not like anything formal. <laughs> it's, it's not a formal write-up or anything like that. 
you know, it's just getting in there and, and trying to reinforce things that they naturally are doing that they don't even realize typically and, and not seeing the output. And that's the thing about education too. And with teaching is so often we don't get to see the result, right? So we have a challenging student. We spent all this time, we tried all these different strategies and it seems like we're a failure. It's not working. The kid's not going to, you know, be anything when they grow up. And then you see them four years later, they're this, you know, amazing student, amazing person. They're walking with a diploma. They're going to college. They're doing all these things in the community. And you're like, where was that kid four years ago? But that's, that's what you as a teacher built because of your influence. That's what happened in the end product. You know, and I can say that for my teachers too. They probably thought I was going to be you know, a total dropout and not do anything with my life. And then, you know, if, if they saw me now, like, obviously that's very different. They didn't see any of that. They didn't see all of their hard work pay off in the end. And so, you know, it's just kind of those, one of those professions that's really, really difficult. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I think in general, teaching rewards longevity, right? It rewards you. The longer you stay in it, the more rewarded you are. And that's true financially, for sure, right? Like the longer you stay in it, the more you make or you get to the end often, not in every school, but in many, you get a retirement that's pretty solid, right? Like you can kind of, I mean, at the beginning, it's a nightmare what teachers are paid, but more in terms of what you're talking about, right? You got to be in it for a while, to have that kid come back and say, Hey, I remember you, like you, you made a difference in my life. And like, there's a lot of kids that we're having that impact on right now, but we don't know it. We don't know because they don't tell us. And not only do they not tell us, they often tell us the opposite. They make it seem like, you know, it's like my own child sometimes like dad, I hate you. Right. When like, really like you're setting limits for them and you're being a good parent, like, and, and they don't like that right in the moment because they want what they want in that moment. But then you kind of look back and you're like, well, that was really good for me. And I think that's such an important rule to remember is that you don't often see the payback right away. Like it takes time to get there. Yeah. I, I remember several students coming back and visiting and I'd be like, why are you here? Like, why are you coming back to visit? I thought you hated me. And they're like, well, I told you that a lot when I was here, but actually like you made a big difference and I just want to come see you and like hang out, you know, like, so it's funny that you say that because I've had that ex experience many, many times of kids in the moment, not enjoying the structure that I'm putting in place and the lessons that I'm trying to provide them. However, you know, later down, they're able to reflect and be like, oh, you know what? He, he really did care about me. And I, you know, to have a student come back and, and share that with you, that makes your year. I mean, because then you can see all the hard work all the things, all the blood, sweat, and tears that go with that, the challenging conversations with parents, with teachers, with students, um, really does make the difference. And so, yeah, I wish for more teachers that happen more often. And, you know, it's even the simple things, Brian. I remember a, a kid at the end of the year, give me a card saying, thank you for your, for your smile and saying hello every day. I don't, I didn't know the student. I, I couldn't tell you anything about the kid, but I do remember seeing them in the hallway and smiling and saying good morning every single day because that's just one of the practices that I'm really <laughs> intentional about. And just even something as simple as that was made a, a difference in a kid's life. We don't even realize like just those little things for a kid that maybe doesn't want to be in the building to have a smiling adult say good morning. I mean, does make a difference. And dude, it's it's so true because like. Okay, so last year, personally for myself, I worked in 141 different schools, right? So I, were, I was in 141 different places. And I'm telling you, right, there were people where I would walk down a hall of a school and they would look the other way, they would look down, they would look up, 
there were other people in that same building. They didn't know me from anything, right? But they'd be like, hi, I've never seen you before here. Pleasure to meet you. What are you here for today? Like, nice, you know, like, and the difference that you feel as an adult, right? Like, and again, I don't, I don't need it as an adult. I don't need it. Like, I, it's nice, but I don't need it, right? But you can see it, you can feel it. And it's such an incredible difference. And, you know, the other thing that you said earlier that I think is so true, right? Like, I think the real world opens up for kids who struggle in school. Like school is a hard place because to be successful in school, if you really think about it, you got to be good at a lot of different things, right? Like, especially like middle school, high school, like you got math, science, ELA, social studies, art, music, phys ed, foreign language. Like I just rattled off eight things without even thinking, right? So that means there's probably 10. In real life, you just got to be great at one thing. Like what's, when's the last time you went to the dentist and you're like, no, tell me about the war of 1812. No, I'm not opening till you show me how to diagram a sentence, damn it, right? Like, like, I don't care what you know how to do. Just like, if you fly the airplane that I'm on, get me up and get me down and do it in the right place. I don't care about anything else that you know how to do in the world. So the truth about the real world is be great at one thing versus school where you got to be great at 10 different things. It's a whole different world, right? You talk about graphic design. I mean, you could struggle in school and be a phenomenal artist and you could come out of school, make 50 grand a year, being a, especially now, right? With, with podcasts and there's so much more use for graphic design than there ever was back in the day. I just throw that one out there because you kind of mentioned that was the world that you came from. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're removed from something for so long, you start to forget. So one of my principals had a brilliant idea of like, hey, we're all going to run through a child's schedule. So we just randomly picked a schedule and we went through it. I was so exhausted by the end of the day as an adult. And it was so eye opening to say, this is what we're making our students do. So if I'm miserable as an adult and I'm having some time focusing and I am so tired and drained after running this schedule, then what are we doing for our other kids? Right. So that was something that we did as an administrator and it was eye opening. We started to try to make some changes with like the teachers that we saw and some of those things. I was as an adult, not an expert in all eight. And I struggled in almost every single class that I <laughs> went in because, you know, that's just not information that I'm used to having to obtain and, and to, you know, recite and whatnot. So, yeah, I think it's one of those things that we just need to understand and be empathetic about as adults with our kids that, they're going through not only difficult things in their life, they're trying to figure out who they are as individuals. Their brain is growing as rapidly as a two-year-old, especially in middle school. And they got a lot of emotions that they don't even understand what they are. And then on top of that, we're going to ask them to be experts in potentially eight to 10 different subjects. So maybe let's give a little bit of grace in that and some understanding and trying to get to the bottom of what's going on in their world so that way they can be successful moving forward. Not to mention the physical size difference between kids when you get to a certain age. So the brain is going 100 miles an hour. So is the body for some kids. And for some kids, it's not, right? Like I have a fifth grader, you know, my son. And so he'll be in middle school next year and he's little. Like he's not, some of the kids in his class are, they're like big kids, you know? And that's a physically intimidating place. And like, He's already anxious about PE next year. Dad, we're going to have to change. And like, I don't want to take my shirt off. And like, and I get it, right? Like, I get it. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a tough spot that we often put kids in. I mean, I have <laughs> a variety of ages in my house. So I've, I've definitely experienced all those different stages. And yeah, I mean, as, as an adult, you know, we try to do our very best to try and navigate that with them. But, you know, and there's a lot of tears, a lot of tough days, but there's also some amazing and brilliant days where they come back feeling fulfilled. And, you know, for any educator out there, I just, I hope that you're as focused on the essential skills 
as you are as the curriculum. Because, you know, I know for you too, Brian, you probably feel this way. Like when you look back at your educational career as a student, the people that you remember and the things that you remember, it's not about the curriculum. It's not about assessments. It's not about the projects. Yeah. It's about the people, how they made you feel, and the lessons that you learned from them as to how to become a adult that's functioning. And those are the people that I remember and have high regard for versus, you know, some sort of curriculum or project that I, I went through. I don't remember those. It's all we have, right? All, all we have when it's all, my grandma used to say, you know, God bless her. She's been gone for a while now, but my grandma used to say, I remember this grandmother wisdom. She used to say, uh, when they put you in the ground, they didn't put anything in there with you. Right. And so the reality is it doesn't really matter what you have on this earth. Like it doesn't matter your physical possessions or your material items. What matters is the legacy that you leave and how do people remember you? And the great thing about educators is we have an opportunity to form that every single day. Right. Like every single day we get to work toward how people are going to remember us. And I encourage people make decisions with that in mind. Like when you're making a decision about a kid, ask yourself, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, when they're all standing around the ball field and that kid is now, you know, older and grown up in this town and they're kind of all having a conversation and they and your name as the teacher comes up, what are they going to say about you? And what do you want them to say about you? And right now is the time for you to formulate that and respond right now in that way. I talk about a teacher in my workshop, Mr. Dalton, who, you know, changed my life. I mean, he certainly was was instrumental in that. And it wasn't he didn't do a lot. He he came in one day and he pulled me aside and he told me that he loved having me in my in his class. I, I've got sort of one of the things that has done well on social media when I post seven words that can change a kid's life. I love having you in my class or I love having you in my gym or I love having you on my team or I love having you in my cafeteria. Like I love having you in my library. Like you can fill in the blank for whatever it is. But I remember being told that and that was the first time I had ever been told that. It was sixth grade was the first time a teacher told me that they love having me in their class. I mean, up till that point, I had, rem I remember multiple teachers trying to get rid of me. Right. But like, that was the first time. And I remember just kind of looking at him ready to argue. Right. Cause he was like, I need to talk to you about something. And I, and, and he said that, and I was like, you, 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 you what, <laughs> like, what did you just say? And he's like, I love it. I love working with kids like you. You're my favorite kind of kid. And like, I didn't realize at the time that kids were like ice cream flavors, meaning there's, there's different kinds, but there are, you know, and like, he was like, I just like the ones that, that are, and he, and he started telling me about me, right? He's like, I know kids like you love being the center of attention. You love having everyone look at you. You love being in the middle of all the action all the time. I still love it, right? That's all still stuff that I still love, right? And he was the first person to tell me that it was good. He looked at me and he was like, it's good. He's like, if you can get good at it, I remember him saying to me, if you can get good at it, like Leno and Letterman and Seinfeld and Chris Rock, you could do really well in life. And I was like, yeah. And like, but that was it. Like I was hooked. I was hooked. And the, and the thing about that dude is it didn't matter from that moment on what he taught me. He could teach me whatever he wanted to teach me. I would learn because I wanted to learn from him. And that's what it's about, right? It's about understanding that there are some kids who will learn for one and they won't learn for another. Well, what's that one doing that that one isn't doing, right? And it always comes down to this. It always comes down to connection and relationships and, and just really getting to know the kids. Josh, these, these 45 minutes go quick. I have a lot more questions, but I try to stick to these. Any last piece of information that you want to leave teachers with? No, I think you make a great point, Brian. I, I remember specifically the people that I worked the hardest for and the ones that I got the best grades for were the ones that connected with me on a personal level. 
And I think that's huge. If you can have that in the forefront of your mind, moving forward of what are the connections I'm making with my kids, I assure you that the product that they're going to create is going to be much better if you get down and understand who they are as a person. The person that impacted me the most growing up asked me if I was on drugs. I know that question probably doesn't sound like the <laughs> correct and politically uh, you know, driven question, but it was the one that made the biggest impact because it was him getting down to the understanding of like, are you okay? Well, what do you need from me? And you know, that conversation I will always remember um, because it was not about the subject matter. It was not about homework. It was about me as a person and getting to the bottom of what was going on in my life. And that's extremely impactful. So make sure that you are checking out those connections and how are you understanding and knowing your kids each and every day. And one last thing for you, Josh, best French fry. Remember earlier from the French fries, what's your number one French fry go to if you had to pick one? I love curly fries, man. So like, give me some Arby's. Curly fry? What about a plate? Arby's? Really? Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Anywhere that's going to have some curly fries, you know, something that's a little bit crunchy. So. So I'm a Chick-fil-A French fry guy. Like I could seriously eat Chick-fil-A French fries all day long. Um, <laughs> and I mean everything else from Chick-fil-A too, but it's pretty good. I love their fries. Aren't they? They are. They are good. All right, man. Listen, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Everybody else, don't forget to rate, download, subscribe, review. We're over half a million downloads on the audio version. So appreciate all of you guys so much. I will be back with you same time in two weeks, two weeks. Until then, I say peace, peace. We're out of here. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining.